I'm Adrian Sykes, and welcome to episode six of Did You Know Pioneers, the podcast dedicated to telling the stories of the executives of colour who have led the way in the UK music business. Today we're talking to one of the most influential women in our business, top industry lawyer, Sonia Dewan. Here's what Sonia had to say when I asked her why she chose the music business. In a word, because it's crazy. Because it's still it's a bit still a bit of the wild west. I think it gives you um, quite a lot of room to manoeuvre. You are almost making things up as you go along, but that allows it to be more creative than other industries. I think. We'll get into that as we move down. I'm really interested to hear about the creative element of being a lawyer in in the music business. But it'd be really nice for you to kind of tell us about the young Sonia Dewan and your path into the music business and how you came to be involved in the world that we're in now. It's been quite a journey for me, Um, a young Asian girl growing up in a tiny mining village in South Glamorgan in Wales, ending up as co-owner of a music practice in the centre of London. My first foray into the world of law was as a film and TV lawyer, which I enjoyed. But after a while, I realised that I was getting bored of the law, needed a new challenge. But I wanted to give the law one final chance. So I applied to a music law firm called Leon Thompson as the last ditch attempt and got the job. And from then on, I didn't look back. I found something that excited me, that I loved being part of, and a challenge. Your journey into the music business, in some ways, then, is a little bit different to to most people who are enthused, impassioned by the business before they arrive. It's something they've always wanted to be a part of by seeing it. Your journey is rather more sequitious, where you've kind of taken a different route. What was your love of music beforehand? Was it something that you were always a fan of? I didn't really grow up in a household which was steeped in music. Both my parents were Indian. My father listened to traditional traditional Indian music. So it's not something that I grew up with. Of course, I, you know, as a kid growing up, you swapped tapes with your best mates and made your mixtapes or the top 40 rundown on a Saturday, Sunday night even. But it wasn't something that I even realised that I could get into as a lawyer. It was not part of what I knew. So I did somewhat fall into it. But having done so, I, re- I you know, I look back and realise that I just found something that I could be good at. In your early days, entering into the into the world of law and then going from law and film and TV into music, who were your early influences? Who were the people who mentored you, showed you the path and kind of guided you? I know this is a bit cheesy, but I guess my parents have probably been my biggest mentors. Being a female Asian of my generation, I grew up in a space where there were only really three things I could do, medicine, law or accountancy. So I tried medicine, decided that wasn't for me. So the next one on the list was law. Both are very, very similar skill sets, I think. Both involve a lot of hard work, which is what my parents have always taught me to do, is work hard and be the best you can be. So when I originally qualified as a lawyer in the film and TV world, it was exciting, it was new, it's something I could, didn't realise I could actually be a lawyer in. But to get the opportunity of being a music lawyer in a, in a world that 
was way more immediate for me, being part of the advising talent. You feel like you're part of part and parcel of their career. When you're starting out, you're in your first law firm in film and TV as a young Asian lawyer. How many people did you see looking back at you that looked like you? None. When I first started applying for jobs as a lawyer, I guess I very naively assumed that I would walk into a job within one of the, you know, magic circle city firms. You know, I'd come come out with, you know, what I'd call a relatively decent degree from a prestigious university and thought I'd walk into a job, but I didn't. I didn't even get an interview. And looking back, it was in the days when you had to say, send a picture of yourself and disclose your ethnic origin. You know, I can only look back and think that a lot of the times I got discounted immediately because of my ethnic origins. So the job that I eventually got wasn't necessarily my first choice. But maybe, you know, with hindsight, it was the best thing that happened to me. And knowing in reflection now that being an ethnic minority, possibly gender, may have discounted you from, from, from some of those roles, how do you look back on that now and view it in your rearview mirror? How does it make you feel? It's odd. You know, you would have thought with the way, with my background, I would have always felt very different. I was at a school where I was one of only, say, three non-white girls over the course of the entire seven years. During the course of my university, in my year again, I was one of a handful Every law practice I've worked in, I have been one of a minority, but I've never really thought of it as a disadvantage. My guiding ethos has always been to work as hard as you possibly can and be the best you can be. And that seems to have worked for me. Clearly it has because you're now a successful co-owner of a law firm. So tell us about your journey past that point. Once you get into the world of film and TV and you find it's it's not for you. How did you find your route into, into music? What was the moment you decided that that's where you wanted to go? Although we're in the arts, it's still a bit of a leap. It is a bit of a leap. And it was, a, I actually think it was more a leap of faith on the part of Leon Thompson than it was for me. As they just saw, I think they just recognised something in me that was hungry that was curious and had a real thirst for learning. And so I think we equally took a a leap of faith with each other. The difference for me between film and TV and working as what I'd call almost primarily a talent-focused lawyer is that it is so much more immediate. I always look at what we do as clearly lawyer, but also maybe to some extent commercial advisor but also therapist, <laughs> which, I'm sure, which I'm sure as a manager, Adrian, you know exactly what I mean. But I think we're all yeah, three no, all rolled up in one, into one. For sure. And for me, that is such an interesting part of what I do. It'd be really nice if you could actually expand on what you do, because I don't think people really understand how entwined a lawyer can be in an artist's career or their client's career. I guess people have visions of lawyers, you know, sitting at their desks, 
um, surrounded by paper, though, as actually, Adrian, you can see that I am surrounded by paper. Um, yes, I can <laughs> see a lovely floor. I know that. It's a, yeah. um, marking up contracts, <laughs> um, writing letters, which, of course, is part and parcel of what we do. But I think what people also forget is you're juggling so many priorities all at the same time. Um, so it's not just marking up contracts. It's actually advising people on what their the best commercial decision to be made whether you know what what label they they want to go decide to go with or what publisher they're deciding to go with is using the knowledge that we have about the industry and the various players involved and for me I have to say for me that's the best part of my job is being able to impart the knowledge and expertise that I have so that your client is best informed and is able to make the right decision for them. Because this is not a cookie-cutter type exercise. There is no one-size-fits-all. Every single client is very, very different and all have very different concerns. And being able, in some small way, to work hand-in-hand with their manager to ensure that they make the right decision for them is really important to me because it potentially is going to inform at least the next five to 10 years of their life. And when you're kind of advising, you know, young clients, you see yourself in a pseudo parental role. How has the role of the lawyer evolved over the past five to 10 years? It's a much more hands-on role than I remember when I first started as a music lawyer over 20 years ago. I think because the industry has changed so much in the last five to 10 years, you need to be on top of things in a way, you know, far more so than we used to be, just simply because the channels to market have completely changed. The way in which music's consumed has completely changed. The players have changed. Most lawyers now take a far more active role in what their clients are doing. The digital revolution has affected us all. And the way in which the deals are structured has changed enormously. With the advent of digital and the, you know, CDs, you know, being obsolete has meant the deals which are being offered has completely changed. For example, um, labels looking to share in ancillary revenues and trying to make a client understand why they're taking that position. It was quite difficult at the time because, um, you know, every artist or every manager was used to the fact that all a record label was doing was taking your record rights as opposed to a share of everything else. I think that's one of the biggest examples of the change that we've kind of gone through over the last five to ten years. But also the fact that artists no longer have to sign to a major label. They can, you know, we've seen so many examples of artists being able to do it themselves um, and have more control. And I think uh, younger artists are far more aware of what they're able to do by themselves and are more willing to take a risk on themselves. Are lawyers more important now than they were five or 10 years ago in the current state the business is in? I'm hesitant to say we're more important than we were five or 10 years ago. I just think we are maybe relied upon in a different way than we were five or 10 years ago. And I think that's also maybe from from my point of view, that's also a function of age and also a function of the amount of experience that you have having been in the industry for as long as I have. 
you know, you know things in a way that I wouldn't have known 25 years ago. And you're able to impart that knowledge to empower your clients. Tell us about Sound Advice, your company, how it operates. Obviously, we're not going to go into details about the clients, but it's a very boutique, bespoke law firm that clearly gets very close to its clients and has a deeper relationship than some lawyers do in other firms. I can't comment how, how it works in other law firms, but I think one of the guiding principles of when Robert and I set up Sound Advice was the fact that we wanted to be able to offer our clients a, you know, a legal service, clearly, but also act as commercial advisors. And we do take a very hands-on approach with our clients. We do see ourselves as a family and want to be able to do the best we possibly can for them. So yes, we are a boutique practice. We're primarily um, a talent-based practice. So look after artists, songwriters, producers, managers, entrepreneurs. Um, And that's the side of the business that both Robert and I love. We're a very tightly knit firm. And I think we punch above our weight in terms of its size, but to some extent, you know, we're as good as the clients that we have. And I think we're very, very lucky with the, you know, the depth and breadth of client base that we have. You know, we've clearly built over the last 13 years of sound advice, but also clearly when we were both partners at Lee and Thompson. As you sit and look at your career now, do you think that you face many challenges as a person of colour in the music business? And if you have, how has that affected you? I I do think about this and try to work out whether the biggest challenges I've faced are because I'm of an ethnic origin or whether because of my gender. And I haven't quite worked out which is worse or which is best, whichever way you look at it. I haven't really thought about it. I think I've been very, very lucky in terms of my career progression in so far as the mentors I've had. They've never, I don't think anyway, treated me any differently because of my colour or because of my gender. I've just always been encouraged to do the best that I can. And they've nurtured my natural curiosity and, dare I say, ambition. It's not something that's held me back. But of course, you know, there are always certain things that you'd notice whenever I'd walk into a room, like either assume that you were the PA, the assistant, never really. And also the fact that I didn't know anything about football didn't help when I first started. You've gone past that point now. I've gone past that point. Yes. No, I, you know, I've definitely gone past that point, even to the pack where I have my own fake football team. Um, I don't think it's hindered me, but maybe that's a lot to do with the fact that I've always been taught that you have to work harder. So I did. Back in 2014, you were named as one of women in music's prime movers in the music business. Do you consider yourself a role model? Well, I don't see myself that way, but if I am able to inspire young females of colour to feel that this is an industry that they can work in, can thrive in, can love, then that's a great thing. The industry's definitely changed because you definitely see more females and females of colour working within the industry. And, you know, they are way more aware of their value than I ever was when I first started. 
things are going the right way. And, you know, I just have to look around at some of my girlfriends who work in the industry and I'm totally inspired by what they do and the positions that they, you know, they've got to. So it is inspiring for me seeing that. It's changing. One of the things that people say about you, apart from the fact that you're a fantastic lawyer, commercially very savvy, very thorough, utterly professional, is that you are very, very tenacious. How does that make you feel? I think that's a good thing. I'm complimented by that. You go after what you want and you try to get the best deal you possibly can for your clients. That's what, that's what they come to me for. Let's go back just a, just a touch and talk about being a role model and being a strong, entrepreneurial, ethnic minority female in the business. How important is it for you to see a reflection of yourself looking back or for other females to be able to see that? And what do you think it gives them? If it allows them to feel comfortable in pursuing their dreams and pursuing their ambitions then I've done something right. And you're someone who's worked unbelievably hard, achieved a dream, co-own a company. Looking outside of that as you walk around record companies and see other women, other women of colour, do you think that they have the opportunity, I mean, particularly in the year where we've seen record companies trying to make substantive change to achieve their dreams? I think there are always certain sacrifices that females have to make um, to pursue their dreams, especially within an industry that's still male-dominated. And I think that that may well be exacerbated by being of colour. But I am, you know, pleasantly encouraged by what's going on in the industry right now and the the way in which people are moving up the ranks. But... I have to recognise the fact that I was given certain opportunities by, you know, my parents and the upbringing that I had and potentially taking things for granted that others of my ethnicity may not have had the benefit of. Essentially, I grew up in what one would call a middle-class family you know, went to a private school, I didn't have to struggle in that way. I think that's really what I meant, is that I had that family support. It's really interesting that you mention it as a privilege, Sonia. And I'm not quite sure why you see it as that, given the fact your parents worked incredibly hard and made a life. I mean, that was just what they made for you. It's not a privilege, it's it's your right. I do look at it as a privilege, that I was lucky enough to have parents who did work the way that they did and imbued that sense into me. But it's really interesting because I think as a parent, I for me, it's a responsibility. And it's a responsibility that I take you know, very, very seriously. If you have children, you have, and I say maybe it's blue sky thinking and you know, I don't, I'm certainly not unique, but I have a duty of care to my to my children to ensure that they're given the very best opportunity with the very best advice, imbued with ambition, provided with inspiration and aspiration. And we have an honest and open relationship and I tell them what they can and can't do. And, you know, I try and empower them as far as I go. The reason why I say this is because I've spoken to a couple of people previously. There is that sense of 
you know, we've had that sense of privilege. We've had that sense where people have said, I've been really lucky. You don't hear that often from our white counterparts. That sense of privilege is not something that they ever count or factor into their careers. You're totally right. It's a very, very different way of looking at it. I, I guess I've always looked at it that way, that I was lucky enough to have parents who did what they did. But you're right. My white counterpart would never think of, I don't think they would necessarily think of it that way. It's a change of thinking we have to, kind of, we have to move on from. So do you think that's a generational conversation in the way that we think as products of our parents, of our immigrant parents, or it's just something that is imbued in the fabric of the thinking of ethnic minorities from whatever diaspora they come from? It's definitely within the thinking of ethnic minorities of, say, our parents' generation, but I don't think that necessarily, it's not, I don't think it's something that's inherited. I think that will change over the generations. No, you're right. It's certainly not inherited, but it's certainly something that was on arriving here. There was that sense of doing better and opportunity and not passing up that opportunity. And clearly one of the recurring themes, as we, as we know, and it's, a, it's an old theme and it's, it's worn and it's very, very tired, but the idea that ethnic minorities have to work twice as hard to kind of make that leap or to certainly be, even be close to being on equal footing with their white counterparts when they're going for a position or they're in, uh, in line for a promotion or whatever in life. That's definitely the way I thought I had to. I guess to some extent, I still feel that way, that I have got to try twice as hard. Even after 20 odd years in the business, you still feel that way? Yes. Can I ask why, given the fact that you're an established, incredibly successful lawyer, a co-owner of a firm, amazing clients, why do you still feel that you have to try twice as hard? It's inherent within my nature. There's always a certain amount, especially working in this industry of imposter syndrome, that someone's going to find you out. And I think it's even worse when you're female and non-white. So it's almost sometimes it's a double whammy. However successful you, you might appear, there is still that doubt in the back of your head. Is that, am I good enough? And is that a recurring conversation that you have with friends of a similar background, you know, career path? Yes, to some extent. I mean, we don't, I, maybe it's not articulated that way, but it does under, underlie the way in which a lot of, say, a lot of my girlfriends think about what's going on in the industry. How do we change that, Sonia? It's down to education and the broadening of opportunities. Is that us educating ourselves as well in, and not just in a scholarly way, but, you know, from a mental perspective about understanding that you know there is a greater good about what we do and we can play in the same way without having those fears in the back of our minds. You're right. It's, an, it's kind of internal education and external education. It's making other people aware and allowing ourselves to accept that we're good at what we do. This has nothing to do with, or should not be anything to do with colour or gender. It's just being able to do the job and doing it well. How did you find navigating the world of law, film, TV, music as a female and as someone of ethnic minority? Because there are times when I've heard people say, 
I had to do things differently. I had to maybe give up a little bit of me. Was that the case with you? The best part about the music industry is how all-consuming it is. The worst thing about working in the music industry is how all-consuming it is. And I think that as a talent lawyer, it's not just what you do during the day at your desk or on the phone during the day. It's about everything else that goes with it and the networking and the after hours. And there were times, I guess, when you're out at a gig and you're maybe there by yourself. And unless you know how to handle yourself, it can be slightly overwhelming. And I think as a female lawyer within the industry, that can be quite tough. I'm lucky in so far as I genuinely love what I do. So I don't I don't very rarely think about what I do as being a job. For me, it's a way of life, but it is a way of life. And I'm not sure, I'm, unfortunately, I'm not one of those females, I believe, who's, who'd be able to juggle a family and run a business and dedicate as much time as I do to my clients and take calls or whatever time at night or morning, whenever. I mean, I do it because I love it. But that did involve a certain amount of sacrifice along the way. And, you know, that was a decision I I made, whether consciously or not, but is a decision I made. And I've got total respect for all those females within the industry who are able to juggle it. I'm just not one of those females who would be able to do so. That sounds like you're talking about a business that we're both involved in that is still very stereotypically male-dominated, male-biased. Do you think that's the case? I do. Unfortunately, I do. And do you see any change on the horizon? Interestingly, I think what um, COVID has alerted a lot of employers to is the fact that working from home or flexi working hours is something that's actually feasible and may actually um, be of value to them as a business. I do think businesses are going to evolve from this, and that may bizarrely have a positive impact upon looking at working hours, and in particularly for females. You've done a lot of work in the past in women in music initiatives, helped to promote interest, recognition within the business. How much of a difference do you think that work has made in the past? And what are some of those successes and what do you do next to improve the lot of females in the music business? Adrian, I'd love us to be in a business where we didn't actually have to have, for example, separate award ceremonies to actually applaud and recognise women within the industry. That's where I'd like us to get to, is where actually women are recognised and we don't need something separate to recognise the value that diversity has within our industry. But it had to start somewhere. It's important that women are recognised within the industry and the value that they have. And so all the initiatives that have been made thus far are important. But we're all working towards a fact where actually we are colour and gender blind. It's been a crazy year. Obviously, coronavirus, it's seen all of us having to work from home. It's seen George Floyd. It's seen Blackout Tuesday and the music business across the board trying to make very, very real changes in the way that it operates. 
how important, how effective do you think those opportunities and those changes are going to be in empowering females and ethnic minority females in general to actually play on a, on a very level playing field in terms of opportunity and being able to ascend to the highest positions in the business, talent being the main key, obviously. I think what's been done this year is clearly extremely important. It's shone the spotlight on the various wrongs that we all face on a daily basis. What I'd hope is that it's not just lip service and it's something that is continued with, what's what's the phrase, with some teeth, that it just isn't done for perception and that there is real force behind it. That's what my only real worry is, that this is great. It's a great start, but we need to make sure that this follows through. And ultimately, this is all, it's still down to opportunity and education and about making, you know, our younger brothers and sisters realise that there are opportunities available in the industry and making those opportunities available, that it's not just down to who you know, or if you you know you know the MD of a label, and they'll get their friend's best mate in to do an internship. And what I do worry about in terms of actually kind of increasing the diversity in our industry is how do certain members of the society break into the industry when they can't actually afford to. And do you hope to see more Sonia Dewans? I don't think the industry is ready for more Sonia Dewans. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I still find it a little bit odd that in my 20 plus years as a music practice lawyer, there aren't more female private practice lawyers of an ethnic origin. And that may well be because of, you know, their upbringing. My parents still think I've got a Mickey Mouse job because they don't, they don't know what the music industry is. However much I can try and tell them I co-own a law firm, I think they're proud of me, but they still don't quite equate it with, say, you know, what my brother does. And what does your brother do? He's a QC. You've both done incredibly well. It might be a little bit to do with people's upbringing and whether or not their parents think the music industry is a suitable career path for them. But I think that's going to change from generation to generation. I would hope so. Um, I'd like to think that the old stereotypical attitudes that my parents and your parents had, you know, of, of what is a job or what is a worthwhile profession will have will have moved on. But there is still obviously some resistance in certain areas. It's obviously trying to bring that next generation through. So as we move on, Sonia, look, we look at where your career is now. What are your short and your long-term ambitions? Short term, I think... As long as I am able to continue to do something that I love doing and um, continue to be challenged by it, that's good enough for me. You know, I'd love sound advice to be within that magic circle of music practice firms. For me, that would be an amazing achievement to get there. Going back to, you talked about people that had mentored you. It'd be really nice to kind of hear their names what they did, how they how they empowered you and gave you that confidence to move forward? Well, I guess, number one, my parents, because I know that's very, very cheesy, but they taught me the value of hard work and going for what I wanted. My business partner, Robert Horsfall, 
Um, he gave me that first opportunity at, back at Lee and Thompson and, as I said, took a chance on me, someone who knew nothing about being a music lawyer, but in, encouraged me um, in, in terms of my quest to be a music lawyer. And then, you know, my clients and great managers, and which Tim Blacksmith and Danny D are up there for me. Again, they trusted me as a young lawyer with their client Stargate and taught me so much in the way in which they handled various people within the industry. But I think it's that their trust and belief in me and various other clients' trust and belief in me over the years that um, has been really rewarding for me and very inspirational for me. What are the things that bring you joy from the job that you do? What brings me joy, doing a great deal, when I can look my clients in the eye and say, I've done the best that I can, and I think they feel good about the deal they've just, they're have just just about to do. I think that probably gives me the greatest joy. Seeing clients go through their journey. I mean, I remember being side of stage watching Chase and Status perform at Glastonbury. That, again, was such a seminal moment for me, seeing them over that their then journey it was about 10 years on and I love that I love seeing them grow what have been the proudest moments in your career to date helping to set up sound advice was a career defining moment for me it was very scary it was a real leap of faith but seeing it survive and flourish is very important for me seeing Netsky perform at his home um, stadium, which he told me when I first started looking after him, that's what he wanted to do. Um, And signing his publishing deal on stage was a great, great moment. But every day there is something that reminds me of why I love what I do and why I'm so glad I'm part of this industry. And what piece of advice would you give to young females starting their journey or thinking about starting a journey into the music business today? I think it's all about hunger, curiosity, trying your best, wanting to be the best, not worrying about what what other people are going to think. And is that the same advice you'd give a young Sonia Dewan 20 years ago, 30 years ago, starting out as a new lawyer walking into the music business? Yes, just pursue your dream. How much of the old Sonia Dewan is still there? The young Asian girl from the Rhonda Valley? Still there. It's always, there's always going to be part of me that feels a little bit insecure, who feels that doesn't quite fit in. I think the shift for me is the recognition of the fact that I don't need to fit in. Are you more comfortable in your skin, and I say that in a pejorative sense, now than you were when you first started? Yes, for sure. I'm definitely more comfortable in my own skin that you know, but that comes down to a certain greater degree of confidence in what I'm doing. But I also think attitudes of, you know, the attitudes over that 25-year period has changed too. As a young female that's about to enter the business, are you saying that you should always be true to who you are? You should always be the person you want to be? Or you need to constantly adapt, evolve, and just live in the surroundings you are, even if that means losing a little bit of yourself as you go on your way? Instinctively, I would say you ought to be true to yourself. Ultimately, if you're not true to yourself, maybe the sacrifice is going to be too, it's going to be too great. I'd also like to think that, you know, we've moved on since I first started. 
I'd like to think that people are more open in their attitudes to, let's call it, people who are different. So when you ask me whether or not I see myself as a role model, I don't, or I don't actively see myself as a role model, but if it means that a younger female, who you know, a young Asian female thinks, well, if she can do it, then so can I, then that's great. I think that, you know, going forward, I do have to spend a little bit more time or actively spend a little bit more time actively offering mentorships to young females within the industry. What kind of person would you be looking to mentor? The idea of, you know, is to afford opportunities for young, aspiring talent to be in a room with someone like yourself so they can see what's possible, to talk about how you've got there, to glean your knowledge bank. So if you were looking for someone to be a part of that scheme and to work with you, what would that person look like? What would you want from them? Well, I guess given the experience I have, it would be, you know, that young Asian girl who who doesn't think that they can actually get into the music industry, that young Asian girl who wants to be a music lawyer. Given that kind of possibility of being a music lawyer, when I was growing up, inverted commas, I had no idea there was such a thing as a music lawyer or an entertainment lawyer. I had no idea suggesting that might be a possibility for a young Asian girl, that would be great. You've got a long way to go before the curtain is drawn on Sonia Dewar's career, but how would you want your legacy to be portrayed as? I think for me, it's just that as long as the people that I work with, that I'm in touch with, that I look after, always felt that she did the best that she could for them and I'd feel I've, I've achieved something. And I think that is a wonderful place to leave it, Sonia. Sonia Dewan, co-owner of Sound Advice, thank you very much for joining us on Did You Know? Adrian, thank you for having me on. I'm very honoured. I'm Adrian Sykes and this was the Did You Know Pioneers podcast, a Downstreet production. Thank you for listening. Thanks to Sonia the One for sharing her story. And as ever, our thanks to Danny D, partner and true pioneer, Sean Springer, our producer Cass Denton, Ella Ruby on the socials, and also to 320 for our theme music. Also, thanks go to Dave Roberts and Tim Ingham at MBW, and to Evie, Ren, David, and the team at WX. You'll soon be able to apply to be mentored by the guests of the Did You Know podcast. Details coming very soon. Did You Know is available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure that you subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure you leave us a five-star review. And look out for our next episode with one of the industry's real trailblazers, Keith Harris, and the inspirational story of his career. This was Did You Know Pioneers. Until the next time. <laughs>